1: indicators.
2: Who knows where this is going to end up.
4: To understand the economy, you have to understand
2: human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast.
4: How you doing there? It is David. The lockdown is nearly over. Apparently, every time I turn on the telly now, The government is contradicting your poor fella, chief medical officer, and they're saying, he's saying, ooh, let's not go back till August. And he's saying, in actual fact, we're going back next weekend. But it does seem as if the lockdown has started to be lifted. Remember Jinx Lennon, gobshite in the house? because there will be those people. John, how are you, my man? I'm very good. Very good. Not bad at all. No gobshites in the house yet?
2: Oh, it's full of gobshites in our house.
4: <laughs> no, What's the
2: crack? All good? It's all good. Yeah, but, uh, you know, the way things are going, and when you look around, the lockdown is over already. It you is know? over. It is over. Everybody is out and about. And in the in the scorching weather, like the likes of around here, Seapoint, Sandy Cove, Dolly Mount. Jammers, jammers,
0: jammers, jammers.
4: jammers. Yeah. Interesting. We're going to talk about scorching weather. Do you? Oh, yeah. rem- do you remember you and I going down to Seapoint when we were young fellas and I thinking that I had the same skin as you, and I got scalded,
2: and you ended up in bed for a week. For a week. I remember sun, that stroke. Yeah,
4: reds are in yeah. the sun, blisters, blisters, blisters. No, it's funny around here. You see all sorts in Dunleary. Yeah. Again, what what I found really interesting. It's what's going on in the States and what's going on here and what's going on in the UK, right? have been watching it. So the UK is kind of atrophying. Yeah. Did he do this? Are you a Brexit or a Remainer? And the whole thing is seen through the kaleidoscope of where you stand on this thing. So Brexiteers want to open up quickly. Yeah. Remainers want to remain in lockdown. It's exactly the same in the United States. Trumpians want to open up quickly. Democrats, liberals want to remain in lockdown. Liberals want to keep the health service front and centre. The others seem to want to keep the yes, economy or perceptions. And in America, it's thrown in with this notion of freedom and sovereignty and all that stuff.
2: Sort of- well, I was going to say that, that like, the whole American thing, being up in flames, is it's now boiling down, it appears, to a scrap, not just on civil rights and Black Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff, but it's down to a battle for the Constitution and the interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah. The First Amendment and, of course, those gobshouts to the Second Amendment. Like, what is freedom I'm free glad to speech? see
4: that you're very tolerant. So the First Amendment's fine, but the gobshites <laughs> to the Second Amendment. I'm glad to see you don't display your politics on this <laughs> podcast, Johnny Boy. But you know what was interesting in the States was the fact that, and it's a really seminal thing, the American military may well be the people that protect the American Constitution over the President. And this you see in many republics. So, for example, Mattis, the former yes, chief of yeah, staff. Yes, I was reading about that. Right? Yeah. That's the first thing. But there was also a memo by the Navy, the head of the Navy, the head of the Air Force, the head of the Army, saying they would protect the constitution. Yeah. They omitted it to say the president. They basically, because the constitution in the United States is higher than the president. Of course it is, That's yeah. the
2: whole idea. Yeah.
4: And it's quite interesting that if the United States, now it's interesting we're going to be talking to... A Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist. Amazing woman called Barbara Davison, a wee wee bit later on, who actually got beaten up this week by cops, was in the front of the New York Times. I met her years ago. She's a hoot. Very interesting woman. But the idea that the military upholds the Constitution is, I think, quite interesting because, in a way, it may well end up that the military are the block to Trump who seems to have misdiagnosed the fact that he may well be commander in chief. Yeah. But the military have their own parallel universe.
2: Yeah. No, I think think you're right. And what was going through my head in the last while is that I was kind of worried that will America actually get as far as November 3rd for the election? You know, it's going to be a long, hot summer. There's going to be a lot of scraps, a lot of rioting. It's not, I don't see it dying down anytime soon. And, um, you know, could we end up with a civil war? Well. Of sorts.
4: You know, there is a possibility that the election, I mean, it's a remote possibility now, but what happens in crisis, as we've always said, what seemed remote at the beginning becomes your central case. And what was your central case is totally redundant. That's what happens in a crisis. Yeah. There is a possibility that the American election in November doesn't
2: happen. Yeah, but because you have some sort of lockdown, but I mean, yeah, but come January 20th or 21st or whatever it is, Trump is out regardless of an election or not happening.
4: Well, what I think could be an interesting model for the United States, and I know it sounds weird because had we said this four weeks ago, you'd say that will never happen. But in Turkey, so the Turks under Ataturk, Mm. I believe Kamel Ataturk was maybe the most interesting, certainly the most dynamic, certainly the most visionary leader that the world saw in the 20th century. An extraordinary character, right? And he built this Turkish Republican constitution, which was based on science, on liberty, on democracy, on secularism, Mm. on female rights, on abortion rights, all these things really early. He was a huge believer in the 21st century, in the 20th century, yeah, you know what I mean? He was yeah, a real visionary. Yeah, yeah. But the army, the Turkish army, became the holders of the flame, the protectors of the constitution. And when Turkey was going towards a revolutionary situation or any sort of situation that the Turkish army believed was against the constitution, they came in and they preserved order. It's like the Algerian Army came in. I know this sounds really weird,
2: mm.
4: but in the early nineties, to stamp out an Islamic revolution in Algeria, it was a vicious civil war. But it was the army protecting the constitution. Now we can. It was like argue, an early
2: Arab Spring,
4: was it? Precisely. But we can argue all about this. But there are certain moments when the army upholds the constitution over the politicians. The worst example, of course, is in Weimar Republic and Nazi Germany, where the army stood aside and allowed the Nazis take over because they had this weird honor to the chancellor and the president. And of course, when Hitler took both chancellery and presidency, he became the boss. But what could be interesting, and I know many liberals would find this deeply offensive, or at least uncomfortable, is the notion that the military is a ballast for sensible, common sense, constitutional politics. And it might happen. It's a strange one, but it could happen. A coup d'etat in America. Not a coup
2: d'etat. Well, it would to be do... seen as that. It would be spun like that.
4: It would be spun like that, but more to do with who defends the Constitution more assiduously, the president or the military? And with Trump, I'm not sure the answer is that clear. Mm. Now, now, that we've, now that we've established ourselves firmly, the Dave McWilliams podcast on the side of military
2: coups, okay, <laughs> yeah. we can move on quite easily from that. But before anything else happens, we still need to get over COVID. Well, and you know, the one thing won't get over COVID is all these demonstrations. Well, exactly. In the, particularly in the United States. Well, my Emma wants to go into the demo in Dublin this weekend. Go for it. Oh, yeah, no, I'm going to. But then how do you combine a good old protest and social distancing, that's that's the problem. Well,
4: I, I just love your kind of, your look, your protest look.
2: I've <laughs> been working it, on it for it's a while. Going to be
4: very, you know, <laughs> you know, you usually think, you know, protest look is these kind of angry, scrawny, yeah, you just long-haired. don't cut it, you just don't cut I'm it. i am got to go in the suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should. But
2: <laughs> well, come here. I've been listening to a lot of people during the week and yeah. reading and all that kind of stuff as you normally do. But it almost feels like, the way people are talking, COVID is some sort of time tunnel that we're going to end up back in the 80s.
4: Yeah. It's <laughs> what do you like, think about that? Well, I mean, it is there, there, there is a sort of a back to the future sort of yeah. uh, feel to it. Great Scott! Exactly. exactly. <laughs> the DeLorean. Well, I tell you a story about DeLorean? Go on. The DeLorean wanted to put his factory in Limerick. Right. The one he put in West Belfast. Yeah, where. yeah. And he came apparently to Dublin to discuss putting the factory, the DeLorean factory in Limerick, which would have been a massive coup for Desi O'Malley, who was the Minister of Industry. And Desi O'Malley got the measure of DeLorean and thought, this guy's a total fraud. This guy is not really really at the races. And DeLorean offered his factory to the Republic first. Yeah. And then when he and the Republic said, no, we don't want it. Because they really felt... That was felt, really bizarre. Because, yeah, because I, thought, I think they, they thought that this guy wasn't... the I mean, you forget that the IDA... There was a fellow called uh, Michael Killeen who ran the IDA years mm. ago. And he was very clever and was very on the ball and understood what was going on in the world and understood that, yes, we needed the jobs, but not at any cost. And DeLorean went up to West Belfast, where he puts the DeLorean factory... Of course, took massive amounts of UK yeah. government grants. The factory was a total disaster. The provosts were in robbing parts. The whole thing was yeah, all yeah, yeah. mental.
2: Yeah. And it cost
4: the Thatcher government a fortune.
2: You know Elon Musk's new car, jeep thing that he, you know, where he tried to smash the window and all that kind of stuff. It looks exactly like a DeLorean, just a kind of a, a beefed up it Has it got the wingy things as well? Yeah, I think it does. But it has that same shape. And, uh, and he just lifted the designs from DeLorean.
4: Yeah, I know. i mean, the jury's out on that fella. What did he call his kid? AZ-1-2-B? Yeah, I don't,
2: yeah <laughs> I don't know. Slap him around the
4: place, man. <laughs> uh, but you're right about the 1980s thing, John. There is a strain in the DNA of Irish economics mm. that is obsessed with the 1980s. So what you hear all week this week is, oh my God, we're going back to the 1980s. Yeah. Nothing could be further from the truth. The idea that you can transplant a decade, 40 years ago now, and say that's reality now is not only naive, it's really lazy. And it's what I would again call, it's a sort of a default position that is obsessed about government borrowing. Government borrowing right now is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. That's what you do when the economy closes down. Right. When the economy closes down, what happens is our spending stops. Therefore, the government spending should rise. This is what they call automatic stabilizers in economics. Okay. So when we're all spending money, tax revenue goes up, government revenue goes up. The government should government should stop spending and begin to save. And when we're all saving, the government should spend. That's how the whole thing. So it works yeah. like like a piston, right? Yeah. The government spends when we're saving. Why are we saving? Because we're worried about the future, and because this is now called enforced savings, because we're not allowed to spend. So you've seen in Ireland and all over the world there's a massive increase in what's called the savings ratio, John. People are saving huge amounts of money right now. Right. Now, when you're saving, you're not spending. Remember. Only the ones
2: that are earning. Yeah.
4: In fairness. But in fairness, the government's the government giving 350 yeah. quid a week, yeah. everybody's earning, actually. Yeah. Yes, everyone's okay, earning. Yeah. But everyone's earning state money. So this idea that When the economy is booming, the government saves and pays back debt. When the economy is recession, the government spends and incurs debt, Mm. right? This idea that we're going back to the 80s is informed by people who are obsessed. Now, there is a generation of Irish economists who are totally scarred by the 1980s and by what they perceive as being the crucible, really, of economics, which was government debt and Irish interest rates and the exchange rate and bonds rates, etc., that's all gone. We don't have our own currency. Yeah. We don't have our own interest rate. We don't have our own bond rate. What we do have is monetary policy executed by our central bank taking the lead from ECB. So in a way, we're just like Mayo in the Irish Republic. If you could imagine there was, you know, no, really, like yeah, Ireland yeah. is like Mayo. If you could imagine the, the Mayo economy for the ECB, for the Eurozone, we're like the Mayo of the Eurozone. Okay. Right. So basically, <laughs> now think of it that way, right? Now, the other thing is, this economy was unbelievably backward socially in the 80s, unbelievably backward politically. I've always maintained, as you know, John, that there is a link between personal freedom, personal sovereignty, and commercial expression. Yeah. That free individual expression, whether it's sexual or political or social, has as its economic counterpoint commercial self-expression. Yeah. That what you find is when, when societies become liberal and tolerant, they become very rich, okay? This is based on all the evidence we know, which is that once you allow people express themselves socially and sexually, you also allow the type of people who want to express themselves socially and sexually to express themselves creatively and to express themselves commercially. So if you go back to the 1980s, I mean, we remember it. Ireland was backward, Ireland was socially backward, it was commercially backward. The economy was cut off from the rest of the world. Yeah. Look at right now. Our income levels are hugely higher. Mm. Our education levels are hugely higher. Our capital transfer, the capital transfer is this idea that the multinationals came in and profoundly changed the industrial structure here. Yeah. Not like you think of your brother Dickie working mm. in Intel for all these years. Yeah. yeah. Dicky was exposed to the highest level of managerial education in Intel. I yeah, think about sure. it, these, yeah, yeah. these are miles ahead of everybody else. People forget when the multinationals came in here, 99% of managers of the multinationals here are Irish. So those guys learned and those girls learned extraordinary stuff that yeah. wasn't there in the 80s. Education, which we, we have immigrants in the 1980s, 450 people emigrated.
2: We were among them. Yeah, we were among yeah. them. Thanks a Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But you know what
4: I mean? Like 450,000 people emigrated. In the last five years, net immigration into Ireland has been 120,000 new people arriving in here. Right. So the society is completely different. If you think about the savings levels of the country are completely different. The level of income of all classes is so much higher. So, and also you think about globalization. Globalization didn't happen in the eighties. There was no globalization. Yeah, yeah. We were totally dependent on the UK, totally dependent on the UK. Now the UK is only 15% of our exports.
2: Right. What was it in the eighties?
4: It was nineties. No, sorry, at independence. It was ninety-eight percent. Right. So maybe two percent went somewhere else, God knows where. <laughs> and then we had the great the war. man. Then we yeah, exactly. <laughs> then we decided to have a trade war with our biggest trading partner, which is not clever. Yeah. Because Devil Era. Didn't read. He, he just basically didn't read the script. He, he wasn't a good economist. True. He wasn't good at it. He was he, the worst thing. He was a good mathematician and a bad economist, which is almost always the way.
2: That's right. Why we, should okay. take,
4: we should take maths out of economics, right? <laughs> because mathemat- <laughs> mathematicians believe there's an equilibrium. They believe it all right. can work, and there's not equilibrium. It's just, as we talked, this changing market. But when we joined the EU or the EEC, EEC in '73. Ireland still exported 70-odd percent of everything to Britain. So we were basically Lancashire mm. or Yorkshire right? Indus, with a flag and an army yeah. and a civil war in the north just for the crack, <laughs> yeah. right, just to do it, right? But if you now look at what's happened now, this society, look, Ireland's economy is like Connecticut with shitty weather. No, we're like a normal American state with bad weather, big American yeah. influences, big European influences, Massive immigration, extraordinary levels of education. Yes, COVID's going to knock us back, but the notion we we'll go back to the 80s. But in it's
2: just in, scaremongering. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. But in fairness to them, though, I mean, you mentioned economic scarring and how it yeah. can actually follow through yeah. generations. I, mean, I know
4: it's real, it's really scary because scarring is this thing that they noticed in the United States that if you leave school or college during a recession, your income is always lower than people who leave school and college during a boom. That's an amazing thing. And it's because of your... It seems
2: kind of logical, though, doesn't it? Well,
4: you know, you you would imagine that if you were unlucky enough to come out in a recession, that over time it'll all equal out. But actually Mm. what happens is your sense of yourself,
0: your ability to negotiate,
4: your sense of your own worth in, in financial terms is framed when you're in your early 20s, which again is kind of difficult to appreciate, but it's the fact. So scarring is a big deal in terms of this generation, which is why we need to get the economy going quickly. Yeah, We will not get it going quickly as if our analysis is wrong. If our analysis is we're going back to the 80s, well, then we might as well stop. And the reason is the following, right? In the 80s, we had our own currency.
2: Mm.
4: We had our own interest rate.
2: yeah,
4: We had our own exchange rate. and We had our our own debt, right? So when the Irish government borrowed money, John, they had to borrow, we ran what was called a current account deficit. So we were spending more than we were earning yeah. in the 1980s. Our level of saving was lower than it should be, right? So we had to get other people's saving to keep the economy going. Yeah, That meant we had to borrow from outsiders. Every time we borrowed from outsiders, the outsiders thought, okay, those guys have borrowed, will they pay us back? That's it. Mm, they've got this sort of Mickey Mouse currency called the Punt, which we announced in 1979. Yeah. In 1979, we announced this new currency and we tied to the Deutschmark and we said it would be as strong as the Germans. And by 1985, we devalued by 30%. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I mean, the surprise is we didn't devalue by more. But so then foreigners said, okay, well, they're paying us back in their Mickey Mouse currency. We know they've already devalued by 30% over the first five years of that currency, mm. or six years. So we're going to demand a higher interest rate from them right. okay. to protect us yeah. from the currency devaluation. So once you start borrowing outside at a higher interest rate, it means your interest rates inside go up as well. Yeah, of course. Okay? If you have interest we had interest rates at 15% in the 80s. You cannot expand an economy at interest. 50. Who will ever borrow anything at 15%? And then, of course, what happens is when you have those levels of interest, you get what's called capital flight. Because people with money think these guys are going to tax all this money. Right? right. So they take their money offshore. Do you remember those Ansbacker accounts and all yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was all that yeah, stuff. Too, yeah. And then people who can't take their money abroad because they don't have access to these things, what do they do? They don't pay tax. So you get this horrible combination of mad tax evasion yeah. and capital flight.
2: Yeah yeah that's the irish story from the 80s but so so are you saying then that if we keep talking about going back to the 80s and stuff it might actually have a detrimental effect on our multinationals that are living here and we we experience more capital flight well
4: no i think what it would do is it would frame the discussion in the wrong way right we have to have a discussion about the economy we have it every week on the yeah. podcast right But we need to understand what we're dealing with, right? And what we're dealing with is an economy that is really quite sophisticated, really flexible, and has an amazing opportunity to come out of this downturn. For example, I'll just give you figures, right? This week alone, the tax revenue of this state comes in. Something extraordinary happened this week. Yeah, the tax revenue of the private sector, us, has fallen. The tax coming from multinationals has gone through the roof. Oh, really? So what we're seeing is an internationalization of the Irish economy because the multinationals, like all the pharma industry yeah. doing well, all the services industry, all your Googles, your Facebooks, they are growing at the right. moment. So what we're are we, seeing... Are we
2: still taxing them properly like but when we before? When we do, when we do, and we will do. Yeah.
4: And I actually believe we should do this tax for equity idea, which we talked about yeah. uh, in yeah. the past. But we need to frame the discussion in an adult way and harping back to the 80s because that's all you know, because you're an economist of a certain generation, only serves to muddy the waters, to put fear into people who have a legacy effect. Oh yeah, I remember my brother emigrated or my uncle emigrated or whatever like that. And in fact, this economy is not only not going back to the 80s, but has a much better chance of expanding after COVID than almost any European economy and that's what we should keep focused on
2: you know we, we've been talking about the money that's been made available by the ecb so who in europe is actually claiming that and borrowing that money well you know if, if, we, if we're afraid to you know what's
4: amazing thing is you know where most of that money is going for business grants you know that it's going to germany really the germans are the ones who
2: they were who need uh, at least
4: yeah. but they're actually doing it most because they realize shit the money's
2: there yeah Let's go and just get grab it, it.
4: Yeah. yeah, so that's quite interesting. Look, as I've said before, the issue is Italy. Italy yeah. is the issue. The European fears that Italy defaults, then Salvini comes in and they have a crisis. Italy gives us, I've said it before again and again, and we maybe conclude this bit here Italy gives us cover to do whatever the hell we like and to go to the ECB with whatever project, whatever infrastructural project we like, and give them IOUs from the Irish state, and they will give us free money. That's what they've said. Now, contrast that, contrast that to the 80s, yeah. when the Irish state was paying 16%, 17% yeah, a yeah. year, which meant that Jackie had to give one-fifth of the money away before you even started. Just no comparison. You have interest rates of zero, yeah. backstopped by the ECB, our interest rate is 15 or 16% backstopped by the Irish Central Bank that is printing this currency called the punch that nobody believes. There's no comparison. So do you know what we've got to say to them, John? As we would have said in the 80s, snap out of it. It's
0: not going to happen. Move on. and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
4: John, look, looking forward, one of our great soft powers, you know this idea of the difference between soft and hard power? Yeah, yeah. Hard power is the, is the power that Russia has, you know, it's like, Military and yeah. tough and whatever. But soft power is this really interesting power. It's the power of imagination, the power of brands, the power of rock and roll. Power of rock and roll. Power yeah. Movies, you know, power of normal people. I know you're not watching it, but the power <laughs> of normal people, right? All that sort of stuff. Literature, joyce, whatever, you know, that's soft power. That's the brand of the country. And in economic terms, what the brand of the country does is it makes other people do what you want without them even knowing. That's the key. So Russia, if Russia gets you to do what it wants, you know all about it. It's down the barrel of a gun. Yeah. Yeah, Soft power is much more 21st century, softer. Subtle. It's nebulous. It's, yeah, well, you know, come on here. And of course, one of those things is the network, is the diaspora, is the people abroad. If you look at even this podcast, John, we're always amazed at the amount of people For in Australia, sure. America, Canada. It's brilliant, yeah. It's amazing. South Africa, all over the place, you know? And in fact, I... I, I Belize,
2: you know. actually. We have a few listeners in Belize. Do we? <laughs> Tax evaders in Belize.
4: <laughs> and I tell you, I, the network of the tribe is phenomenal. I remember years ago, I remember years ago when I lived in Israel. I worked yeah. with an Israeli guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did this great expression. He said to me, he said, man, what do you guys, you Irish guys, do with the the tribe outside? He was yeah. making the point that he said, Israel will be nothing without Jewish people outside. Yeah, of course, yeah. And he absolutely. said, that's what keeps us going, right? Yeah, yeah. And he says, every time I'm doing business in New York or wherever it is, there's usually an Irish guy or a third-generation Irish guy and a Jewish guy <laughs> doing the deals at the end. He says, what do you guys do, you know? And I thought that was, a, and he described it as a great expression. You guys, you guys are all over the place. And I thought, he says, you're the Jews who booze. <laughs> that's really Isn't great. that great? But his point was, you have a great network of your diaspora. Yeah. And you should use that because that's an amazing power. And it's there and it's engaged and
2: it loves you and it wants to be part of your story. Do you think we, we use it enough though? I think we are, I mean, in the past... I use is the wrong phrase, but... But you know, deploy it is the yeah, word. Yeah, yeah. Like, in
4: the past, we just ripped these people off in Bunratty Castle. <laughs> yeah. remember that years ago, right?
2: In their tweed pants. And exactly.
4: Now, I <laughs> think caps. we're using it in a much more proactive way because it's everywhere. And you see it every time I'm... Like, if I if I go around sometimes, I'm asked to give talks in Irish business networks abroad. Yeah. And it's really, really impressive. So, you know, they're on our side and... I've always thought that we should look at Ireland as the sort of recharging battery for the Irishness of the tribe. That they come back and they feel part of our story and then they deploy capital and they deploy skills and people and all that sort of stuff. And it's really, really interesting that our Schumpeter slot this week will be a rather exotic slot because the, the diaspora can be found everywhere, even in the jungles of Sri Lanka. Let's go to it. Now, you know every week we have our Shumpeter slot. It's about businesses, particularly small businesses, that have been totally dislocated by COVID and have tried to change around and change their business model and try to survive the whole thing. Now, this week we have a fascinating... You can't say we're not global. You can't say we are not tracing the Irish diaspora around the place. We're going to be talking in a little few minutes to a Pulitzer Prize-winning Irish Canadian, Barbara Davison. But this time, I want to go madly to Sri Lanka via Dubai, via China, via Japan to Dawn Medcalf. Dawn, how is Sri Lanka as we speak and how are you?
3: I am very well. I'm very sad to say I'm not a Pulitzer Prize winning anything at all, but I am here in Sri Lanka in the jungle. It has been, look, it's beautiful. It's genuinely beautiful. I have access to outside. I have an amazing view of the lagoon. Every kind of animal you can imagine comes to visit. I have a pet kingfisher. I have Nina, the neighborhood heron, who comes to visit me every single morning. But it has had its challenges. Um, The jungle does take over when left on your own for three months. It turns out I have no survival skills. I am not capable of doing anything useful with the machete. And that is what was needed here, David.
4: You had a rat infestation. I did. Tell the world about your rat infestation.
3: Oh, listen! don't even get me started. But it all came to its nadir on the day that two of the little darlings came into the kitchen whilst I was standing in there with two dogs. And they were the size of puppies themselves. So at that moment, luckily, it was also the time that the uh, the restrictions were lifted slightly. So I was able to hire a couple of guys who literally came in with machetes and rat poison and traps. They worked like crazy people for six days and they imposed civilization. and my life is better now and I'm very grateful to them.
4: This is like, this is by far, Dawn, in a way, the best COVID lockdown story I've heard. In the jungle, machete in hand, rat infestation, it's kind of Indiana Jones. Your career has kind of been Indiana Jones. Tell me about the business. <laughs> yeah, it has, I've- you've been all over the world. Tell me right now about the business. What is it? How are you operating a business from Sri Lanka, which is based in Dubai, which has a global audience?
3: Explain that all to me. So so what the business does is training and coaching, mentoring, and then offsites. So that would be anything from me speaking at an event, which of course isn't happening anymore, to us doing a three or four or five-day off-site, you know, strategic retreat, something like that. So literally overnight the business just went to to zero. Um I was here anyway. And then I'll be honest with you, the first six weeks when everything was happening, we, we we would have been ready to go. But I made a decision not to. It seemed to me to be absolutely tone deaf to be reaching out to people and saying, hey, do you want to do some training right now? <laughs> like, that was not exactly, a good time yeah. to do that. So yeah, you went no, to ground,
4: up. you went to ground and shut then you said up. enough.
3: And then just as things were coming back up again, then the rats happened. So I had to deal with the rats, which honestly you know, was fairly all consuming for a couple couple of days at least. And then I reached out to um, a girlfriend of mine who I know in, in Dubai. And the reason I reached out to her before I reached out to anybody else is because she had a three-year-old or a one-year-old. And I was like, oh my God, her life must be bloody awful right now. So I'm going to say hello. And she went, yeah, no, it's awful. How are things with you? And I said, well, you know, from one point of view, great. From the other point of view, business is gone. And she went, oh, do you need some work? And I went, yes, please. And she said, oh, we've got budget. And that turned everything around. That turned around um, what I was capable of doing, but it turned around in my head as well, you know, what what was possible in the world. And we got some amazing feedback from them. And they then very kindly introduced us to to some other people. And so now we're doing virtual training and we're doing it um, live. And we've gone from being a small business in Dubai that could really only work in, in the UAE and the Middle East to suddenly being able to be in everybody's living room or in everybody's I, space. I, I, love, I,
4: I love this. So it's a virtual business run from Sri Lanka, from an, an exotic village on the on the cusp of a jungle hideaway in Sri Lanka via Dubai to the world, training people, communicating yeah. online and the whole thing. That is fantastic. What, what's the what's the name? So,
3: so Pontus can go and find you. So the best way to find us is to go to, and I'm dreadfully sorry that I have an eponymous website, but I do, is to go to dawnmetcalf.com and um, you can sign up there to to our, our newsletter. So there you get loads and loads of free resources. We send out loads of free freebies all the time. And also we'll keep you up to date with the new school that we're launching, which is called BBB. Build boost boss. So build your career, boost your presence, and be the boss of yourself. Because that's what it all comes down to, right? It's all down to being able to manage ourselves before we can manage other people. So that's where we are with that. John,
4: listen, best of luck with it. And uh, you were at the Irish Network, the business, actually the Irish Business Network was where you started, wasn't it? In Dubai, The
3: Irish Business Network. So the day that I started my business, I got my business cards printed and I walked to the Irish Business Network and I went in and I was like, hello, Bejesus Bagarin, how are you lads? And the very first person I met was a guy who hired me at the end of that week and his business is still one of our clients 10 years later. So yeah, a big fan of the Irish Business Network.
4: Fantastic story. Listen, take care of yourself, watch the rats and uh, I hope you so get out much, of there. David. See you, Don.
2: What we are talking about before we spoke to Dawn was about the Irish network, the diaspora. And yeah. she kind of sums it up, doesn't she? She
4: absolutely <laughs> sums it up, you know, absolutely sums it up. And so, I mean, John, the network is amazing and it's there and it's real. And these people are part of our story and yeah. we are part of their story. And maybe we can look at it a bit of a deeper way and realize that this is a mutual thing and networks make a huge difference. And of course, the biggest network, is
2: in the States. Well, it's something crazy like 30 million well, claiming to have some sort of Irish descent.
4: It's They say it's about 44 million. But 44 right? is a Which Jesus. is very, very high. Yeah. But the interesting thing, what's quite disturbing for many Irish people now, is the amount of Irish Americans around
2: Trump. Isn't it? That yeah. I, I, I just look at the names. You know, Mike Flynn, Kellyanne Conway, you know. All of them. Mitch McConnell. Yeah, Jesus. loads of
4: them, right? Now, the interesting thing is, so when we were younger, we were sold the myth that Irish Americans were all like JFK, yeah. or Bobby Kennedy, yeah. okay, liberal and tolerant, and, they're, and on, although JFK was clearly wasn't on the side of the angels, but you know, <laughs> on the side of the civil rights and liberal. Like, something happened. There's a thing in American culture called Reagan Democrats, and they were Democrats who were dyed in the wool Democrats, working men, yeah. school teachers, yeah. blue collar workers who flipped into. Republican Party, which is always wasps, they hated us. I mean, they we set up the Democratic Party. Yeah. Carnegie Hall, oh, that's all Irish, Tammany Hall, all oh, that's all Irish stuff. But in the 1980s, the Reagan Democrats flipped, and they were Democrats who voted Republican for the first time. And a significant, significant amount of them were Irish Americans. And what you've seen in the last 30 years has been the gradual Republicanization. Of Irish America. Yeah. And it's reached its apotheosis.
2: Mm. with the
4: Trump administration. Think about all the Fox News guys. Yeah. You know who's the guy who was fired? Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. All those guys. Yeah. Hannity yeah. O'Reilly. These are Patties I
2: know, I know. I, I I hang my head low. I've got a load of cousins, as you know, in, in the States. In Ohio, isn't it? Uh, a, a bunch in Ohio. Uh they're so anti-Trump, which is great. But I also have in California of Pat, I think you've met Pat I before. I have met Pat. And Pat, Pat will be listening to this. But Pat voted Republican. He voted Trump. But I think he's changed his mind now. And I think that's, this is an interesting thing that's happening now is that a lot of those Republicans are now flipping back to, and it's not necessarily flipping back to a Democrat. It's just anybody it's just but Trump. Trump. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. I
4: mean, I mean, we, we've always said had the, the right seek converts and the left seek traitors. Exactly, yeah. But I think this time around, because of what's happening in America right now, and because of the race war and because of his performance and the way he incited the fucking Egypt in front of that, you know, with the Bible upside down. Yeah. upside down and you feel at least put the book the right way, man, right I think lots of people <laughs> and it wasn't would, his. <laughs> you know in the past people, Republicans held their nose and voted for Trump because yeah. they wanted power. I'm not sure that your cousin Pat and those people can stomach Trump anymore. I don't think so. So let's go to the States and let's get a view on what's happening right from the street. Now, about 10 years ago, maybe a wee bit less, I was invited to speak at a thing called the Google Zeitgeist, which is a Google sort of conference festival. It was somewhere, Scottsdale, Arizona, somewhere I'd never been before in my life. Very, very strange collection of individuals. But one person I met there, is an extraordinary person. Barbara Davison is a Pulitzer Prize and Emmy Award winning photojournalist, photographer. She also happens uh, to have an Irish as well as Canadian passport where she was born in Montreal. And we had a total hoot and we were chatting and I was going to bring her back to the Doki Book Festival and we we're going to have a photo exhibition and all those sort of things, but we just never got it together. Then it was the other day I was online and I saw the New York Times headline and there was a Pulitzer Prize winning, Emmy Award winning photojournalist and her story was about getting assaulted by the cops in L.A. during these protests in the last couple of days. She is on the line now from L.A. Barbara, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Not at all. This is lovely to hear you. Listen, I was watching the New York Times. What happened?
1: Oh, my gosh. Well, as you know, after the killing of George Floyd by the police in Minneapolis, it has sort of woken up the entire country and people have been marching and protesting for the last week. And in Los Angeles, uh, we've had thousands of people take to the streets and there's been a lot of really fiery clashes between the protesters and the police and, and, and people inside the crowd who are just there to disrupt, right? And so uh, the day that I was assaulted by a police officer, I'd say about 20 cop cars had been burned and uh, I was leaving one area that was sort of a relative safe area where I was working went around the corner and the police line started to sweep the street. So that means there's cops from one end of the road to the other and they march together and they move everything in their path. And I said to the gentleman after he screamed at me to get the hell out of the way, which I was out of the way, it's not like I was in his way. Uh, I said, officer, I'm a journalist, I'm just photographing you sweeping here. And he said, get out, I don't give a damn, get out of here. And um, so I showed him my press pass. I said, "Sir, look, I'm a journalist. I, I, you know, I'm covering this." And he proceeded to, to, you know, yell. And so I thought, "Whatever." And I turned away to walk away from him. So I had my back to him, and he took his baton and smashed me in the back and sent me flying. He literally lifted me off my feet, and I went crashing to the ground. And a photographer friend told me that I hit the back of my head on a fire hydrant. And You know, very, very luckily, I was prepared that day for an unruly possibility. And I had my helmet on and my goggles, uh, protective gear. So I was just lying on the ground. And uh, these wonderful protesters picked me up and scooped me up and just took me away. And then I just went back into journalist mode and started photographing a car that was on fire at the end of the street.
4: Now, tell me, Robert, you and I have been chatting about the states, and we're chatting about you know you've been back in Ireland and all that sort of stuff. You've you've won the highest awards in photojournalism that there are. Right. You've seen things, you've travelled around, you've covered Afghanistan, Congo, Israel, Gaza, Kenya, China, Somalia. You know you've you've done it all. What is going on in the mm-hmm. states, in the police force in particular? What do you think the orders are? Why do you think it has become, the LAPD has become so militarized so quickly?
1: Well, you know, I think uh, there are several factors. When you have a president who says that the press are the enemy of the people, I think that gives a free pass for a lot of people who believe that. I think that police departments around the country are becoming more militarized. I think democracy is, we are witnessing the erosion of democracy at this moment because journalists are being attacked. Now, we have never seen journalists in this country being attacked like we are at, at this time. Journalists, it was just declared that one of the most dangerous countries in the world for journalists to work is the United States. Now that's I have never,
4: that is extraordinary. I have
1: never seen that. I have never seen that. I read that story yesterday and was absolutely shocked. But uh, organizations are tallying up all the incidents and the assaults against journalists and uh, there have been hundreds. And so another issue that's really important here is that because journalism is changing so rapidly and newspapers are downsizing, they don't have the money to have staffs like they once did. Um, and Corona, the coronavirus, is expediting that erosion because no, none of them are making any money. You're seeing a lot of journalists in the streets who are freelance. So you have to take into consideration that freelance photographers and reporters who are being attacked, they do not have the infrastructure that staffs have. Sure, now, I like sure, no, I, that.
4: I hear you there. Yeah, look, no, actually, that's a that's an interesting point. I hadn't hadn't grasped it. absolutely that's the absolutely the case. So they don't have the it's the wherewithal the backing the legal's any of that stuff. That's
1: right. So it's much more challenging to go out as a freelancer and cover these stories. One you can get coronavirus 2, you could get your head smashed in. Three, you could be have a combination and be stuck in bed for the next 6 months and and have no financial infrastructure coming in. So I think these are really important issues that need to be brought to the forefront to sort of help the public understand Uh, what is happening with journalism and what is happening with journalists. And I think it's sort of a lethal, perfect storm that's playing out in the streets right now in terms of these militarized policemen, a president who stages photo ops outside the White House holding a Bible and has all the protesters, peaceful protesters, uh, literally uh, shot with rubber bullets to get out of his photo op. You know, it's it's a very fascinating time and I have never seen anything like it.
4: Barbara, like your work—you know, your the, the seminal work where you won your Pulitzer was about gangs, gang violence in LA. You've been, you've been looked down and dirty with very, very poor, very marginalized, very dangerous people—people people who've done extraordinary things. You know, what is—and you've seen, you've seen urban life in the United States up front. What's your sense of where the states is now?
1: Well, I think people are tired of the inequality. That's been playing out in the streets for decades. I think people are tired of the racism that they've experienced for hundreds of years here. I think people are are, are tired. You know, um, this notion of the one percent that have all the wealth in the United States—that's legit. And you have marginalized communities that do not have the most basic of infrastructure in terms of any kind of commercial infrastructure. A lot of the communities are food deserts. Uh, A lot of the children are going to schools that have very poor quality. They're offered very poor quality education. And so people are angry. They're uprising. They want to have the right to a fair and just life like everyone else has. the you know, people that they see, the white people mostly. And I think that this is a really important, critical time. And what's different, what when when I'm hearing from African-American communities, they are saying what's different is this time, uh, white people are really embracing this movement and they are standing side by side with black people and they are doing this movement together. And that's different and that's critical. And that's really important. And the mayor of Los Angeles has just said that he's going to divest part of the police budget and put that money into marginalized communities. Now, how he's going to do that, I don't really know. But that's a huge step, huge, huge step. It's very brave of him to do that.
4: And tell me, what's the feeling like on the street when you're marching, when you're there, when you can smell tear gas, when you know that these what, well, the it's cops chaos, are rubber you know? yeah we have to, we'll, we'll Just explain that to me, because... I'm watching on Twitter. I'm watching on the telly. I don't get a feel for it.
1: Well, I will tell you on sat, Here, here's exactly what's happening. Last Saturday, the police did not have control of the looters, the protesters, and it was chaos. It was absolute chaos. They were firing rubber bullets into large crowds of people who were protesting peacefully. They were, the, the police felt very agitated. They felt very out of control. And what was happening There were thousands of peaceful protesters, you know, just exercising their right and their freedom of speech. But there was a portion of that population—I would say a small, small portion—that were disruptors, and they were there to create an opportunity to loot. Okay, we've had almost every single bloody store uh, looted in the city, and the police. This is in LA. Yeah. 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 Okay. Downtown, downtown Los Angeles has been looted. Hollywood has been looted. I've heard some of Beverly Hills has been looted. Most of people most of the storefronts in Los Angeles now are boarded up with wood. So, the police didn't have their tactics down. They didn't know how to handle what was happening. But they've they've slowly figured out the tactics of the looters. And so the protests are playing out now much more peacefully. They're not attacking these peaceful protesters. They're sort of lasering in and going after the looters. They're actually following them. Because in Los Angeles, they also police here by helicopter using infrared. And so they're following the protest. They're they're following the looters
4: looters around and they can identify them. And is that changing? the by a
1: helicopter.
4: (laughs) But is that changing? Is that changing the the vibe on the street for the protests, then?
1: Yeah, it is. It's a lot nicer now. And
4: it's a a lot less vibe.
1: The protesters are turning on the looters, because they don't want them there. They, I have, you know, I've covered a lot of stories in my life, and I've always been yelled at at some point or another from someone. But the, the protesters have been so kind to me. It's the police who have been nasty, which... Is a different experience. So the protesters are wonderful. I have to say, I feel for them. You know, they have been beaten, they have been fired upon, they have gotten rubber bullets in the forehead, they have been pepper sprayed. And really, there's there was no need for any of that. There was no need to do that to those
4: protesters. And Barbara, can I ask you a uh- about photojournalism, right? Because journalism is all about telling stories, creating images in people's heads, but through the written word, the spoken word, and through the image, what is the role? You know, again, I come back you know, you've, you've won two Photographer of the Year, International Correspondent of the Year, all these awards you won. What do you think is the essence of photojournalism?
1: Well, I think a photograph actually takes a reader into the scene of what's playing out. It helps them feel what's happening. They they can they can emotionally connect through a photograph, which is extremely important. And let's be let's be honest here. The visuals of George Floyd being killed by the police is what has inspired all of these demonstrations around the country. It was a visual a visual and so I believe that visuals are more important than ever, right? It's sort of it's evidence-based. It's sort of seeing is believing. A picture can can inspire you to have so many different emotions, even at the same time. And so that's 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 critical. It's critical and it's a it's a critical piece of information. A photograph gives you so much information and it triggers an emotional response.
4: And what goes through your mind? I'm just gonna ask you, like personally, when you when you know. I have something here that will tell a hundred stories. What is it?
1: Well, you know, when I'm actually making pictures, I, am, I don't want to say robotic because I'm also really in tune with uh, the emotions playing out on the street because my photography happens to be a style that's very intimate, it's very up close, it's very emotive. And so I, I'm very in tune with what's happening in front of me. And it's then when I come home and I look at the take and I edit the pictures, that's when I really can tell if I've succeeded in my work on that particular day, if there's some sort of emotional connection that I feel to the images, because I know if I do, other people will as well, right? So I'm always looking for that, that connection, that image that will draw either empathy or anger or happiness or sadness. I'm always looking for something that will connect. because. As a photographer, if you don't connect with anybody, your pictures aren't saying anything. They're not doing anything. So my role is always to be sure that I connect.
4: Tell me, what, what do you make of this you know, like deep fake stuff that's doctoring photos? I mean, how does that, how's that undermining you, the credibility of your art, uh, your, your profession?
1: I mean, I think it undermines, it undermines the entire uh, journalism profession. I mean, you have this notion, again, with the person who's at the top of the, you know, the person who lives in the White House, who's decrying that this is all fake news and the New York Times is fake news and this is a fake photo. And, um, you know, it's a very dangerous time because when you erode the work and the role of journalists, you erode democracy. And that's what this country uh, is all about, right? And so um, I don't practice fake news. So <laughs> I feel like the the role of legitimate photographers and reporters now is more important than ever because we're under assault and we have to fight this notion that our work is fake.
4: Now, Barbara, I know you're about to go out in L.A. onto the streets to, to, to try and capture some of that emotion empathy, anger, sympathy. If you look back at the the great canon of photojournalism, what do you think, is there one sort of standout photo that captured a moment, that explained to the world what was going on, that changed the course of history?
1: You know, that's a really good question because uh, a lot of us photojournalists, we we talk about that amongst ourselves. And um, I would say that Nick, Utt's photo of the napalm girl running down the street in Vietnam after being burned alive. Literally, I think that that is the most powerful and most iconic Pulitzer Prize winning image um, ever made. There have been mill- you know, lots of other really powerful photos, but if you were asking me to point to one image, um, that's the photo I think comes to my. It comes to my mind, and I think it would come to the mind of a lot of people. You, you see. There are a lot of Pulitzer Prize winning images that people would never know, right? But yeah. Nick Ut's photo of the napalm girl, I would say almost everybody is familiar with that photo uh, of a certain age.
4: I mean, but wouldn't you? It's extraordinary when you just mentioned it because I can see it now and I can see it's her brother and sister on either side of her and she's crying and you can see the backdrop and you can see the jungle behind them and the fires behind them. I mean, I can I haven't seen that photograph for years, but I yeah. know it. And I exactly. know, you know, it's extraordinary. Well, listen, Barbara, I hope to see you in Dublin at one of the right. Cousins' Weddings. I know there's two Cousins' Weddings that were cancelled.
1: Right.
4: I'll Listen, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's stay in touch. This was really fascinating. Be safe out there. We might have you back on the podcast if you'll take a call for us. And uh, Absolutely, absolutely. I'll see you back in Ireland very soon.
1: Yes, I'll be back in Ireland for 2021. And, you know, I have two i have two cousins' weddings to get to. And you know what is so funny? I have to tell you. This is so weird. I don't know why this happened. I had a dream last night that I was having a Guinness. And I was so thrilled because I was having the Guinness in Ireland because it's the only place where they have real Guinness.
4: Barbara, <laughs> you're absolutely right. We're going to have 10 of them when I see you next. Take care of yourself. Okay.
2: Well, I reckon black points matter. <laughs> <laughs> that's bad i know that's bad that is good that is good (laughs) so what is interesting though in all of that mac is what really worries me is how the media has been totally undermined particularly in america you know every story is being twisted and every story is being spun out of all recognition and you know you're big into twitter I've gone into Twitter recently and I've
4: noticed you're, yeah. you've got the enthusiasm of a novice. My I, I do, don't I? I do. Yeah.
2: But what really bothers me about it, though, it's given me a pain in my whole, to be honest. Because all it is, is people shouting at each other and no one is listening. You actually learn very little on Twitter. But
4: well, it's funny, you know, I, I was trying to explain it to somebody recently about uh, somebody said to me, you know, you're very chilled on Twitter, you know, you don't react to anything. And, you know, Twitter reminds me sometimes of, and I re- but I get loads of information for it, so let's park that and talk about that in a second. Yeah. But, you know, if you're ever, when we were kids, you'd be walking along and a fella on a bus, some young fella, roars out as the bus is going along, gobshite, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Or is that only at you? It's only at me. <laughs> but so you have two choices. Either you ignore it or you chase the bus, wait till it gets through traffic lights, get on the bus, go upstairs, and say, I'm not a gobshite. You're a gumption. So think about that, right? Yeah. So that, that's what it is. Right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you shouldn't react to or get drawn into these ideas. I think Twitter is an amazing information service. Yeah. But your point is right, which is the idea, like it's interesting, talking to Barbara there about great photographs. Yeah. Who gets to tell the story? how the story is told, how the story lands. You know, the media have extraordinary power still Mm, to create the right story, to tell the truth, tell it as best we can. I mean, I've been in the media for a long, long time.
2: Yeah, but hang on. Truth is one of those things that has been totally undermined as well. You know, as they say, that the first casualty of war is the truth. But this has been around for millennia. Yes. Now, for instance, let me take you back, Mac, to 4th century BC Okay. in the Persian Empire. It was one of the biggest empires in the world, stretched from India all the way to the Mediterranean and from the borders of Russia, what is now Russia, down to Ethiopia. And it's set up by Cyrus, wasn't it? Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great in about 500 BC. He conquered all this land, which included all the Lydians and the Nubians and all these guys. But the difference with him was that, unlike the Romans, he allowed, for instance, the Lydians, who were based in Turkey, to be Lydians. He didn't want everyone to become Persian. Like, the Romans wanted everyone to become Romans. So it was an incredibly tolerant empire. But... The downfall, it was only around for about 250 years, but the downfall of the Persian Empire was they had scraps with the Greeks. Uh, like, you know the, the movie The 300 and all the rest Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they're always portrayed as being cruel and arrogant. And all this image of the Persians came from the writing of history, which was written by the Greeks. A fella
4: called Heroditus. Herodias? But I think you are right about the Persians, that... Whoever writes the history owns the narrative. Yeah. Whether it's Donald Trump, whether it's Cyrus the Great, whether it's Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was the exemplar of rewriting history. He was also the exemplar, John, of using money to rewrite history. Oh, right, okay. Because he put his head on all the coins and everywhere he conquered they issued alexandrian coins which kind of reinforced it was, a, it was a form of propaganda yeah yes you could spend it but it was also saying i'm the boss yeah i'm the dude and ever since then think about it coins have had the
2: pictures of kings on them that's the- amazing cuz all that, the way through that story written by the greeks lasted for millennia. Still lasts. Well, it still lasts. But in the 1930s, when they excavated Persepolis, which was the capital of the Persian Empire, it's in the middle of Iran now. And we're talking about pictures with Barbara Davison there. Exactly. Um, Who tells the story and how do you tell it? Exactly. And in Persepolis, they found all these beautiful, really detailed reliefs of all these People coming to Persepolis to make offerings. And the thing about the Persian Empire, it was the complete opposite to what the Greeks stated that it was. They
4: stated what it was. Look, I'm going to say something which sounds unusual here. But the first thing is, for the vast majority of recent human history, post-urban humanity, the idea of nation states is very, very new. Very, very new. In fact, the proliferation of nation states in the 1950s was phenomenal. That's when nation states were created at the end of empire. Right. And most empires had to be, by their definition, benignly tolerant to different races in order to survive because that's how you keep everyone on the straight and narrow. Yeah. So, it is a, so maybe the Persians were not that unique, maybe they were actually the model that lots and lots of people took from but what is now fascinating is that empires do ebb and flow they peak and they trough you do get a feeling that the American empire is peaking and beginning to decline, you yeah, do get a feeling absolutely. that these riots are part of an overall narrative an overall story, that they're almost like punctuation marks Yeah. In a sentence which leads into a paragraph which leads into a chapter which is the decline of an empire and that's when empires kick out and the interesting thing Jonas, they first kick out against foreigners and then they kick out against themselves and that's one to watch this one's for patreons and if you're not a patreon sign up now because we have a new addition to the podcast which comes from lots of people asking me questions every week on Patreon about various things in the economy, in the society, in finance, in economic history, etc. It's called Ask Mac, and it's basically your chance to ask me the questions and then us to have a dialogue and a chat and a conversation together. So you can find it at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams, Ask Mac. Looking forward to chatting to you. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why
1: there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans.